0: Road trips, like life in general, have their ups and downs, like the night Lisa and Jeff found themselves lost and in the middle of a North Carolina cotton field. Some of the downs tend to wiggle around in your consciousness in ways that make them hard to dislodge. The couple continue to process the events of that night of several years ago and are pleased to report they're still married. This is part one of their two-part story. Enjoy! Enjoy! The defroster wasn't doing the job, so Lisa used her forearm to clear the moisture from her side window. As the moon rose and the clouds separated, a building began to emerge from the mist. Lisa gasped, Oh my God, Jeff, where are we? I answered evenly, well, from the looks of it, Norman Bates' backyard. Needless to say, that didn't go over well. Lisa and I had been driving for about 12 hours straight far too long behind the wheel fortunately for us we're veterans in the marriage business and as such we kind of know when to speak and also to hold our tongues through sometimes painful experience we've come to realize that after a point others in the car may not feel it necessary to hear every thought idea or witticism in our heads no matter how prescient or inspired we think it might be you know Comments like, no, you should have turned here, or watch your speed. This kind of thing could have unpleasant, kind of serious, maybe even violent repercussions. If not for our mutual self-awareness, this trip had the potential to have ended us up in the ER, or possibly the slammer. An additional stress builder was travel conditions. Dicey at best, it had finally stopped raining yet again. But the wind was another matter. A steady headwind with occasional gusts around 30 buffeted our little motorhome. And along with the rocket-propelled semi, we could sympathize with a cork in a washing machine. Oh, I don't know why someone would actually toss a cork in a washing machine. But, you know, kids will be kids. Suffice to say, distance driving can be crazy-making. We were visiting friends in Florida. We had planned on staying longer, but were concerned about our ailing dog back home. As do a lot of dogs, she has a penchant for rabbit dropping. You know it. If you have a dog, you know it. She can't get enough, carbs notwithstanding. When we go for walks, I try to keep her away from her comfort food, but good grief is she fast! We'll be walking along at a good pace, and then in a flash, Boom! Somehow she spots it, snaps her head down, and gobbles up a few doggy version goobers before I can stop her. To a degree, I can understand. I personally love goobers. You know, the ones with the nuts, designed for people. I'm not a fan of the look-alike Raisinettes. They're raisins. Kinda look the same, but as I said, well, they're raisins. The major problem with goobers in general is that you can mostly only find them at the movies. Dogs, on the other hand, don't have to go to the movies. They can find their version wherever there's rabbits. Unfortunately, some rabbit poop carries the potent toxoplasmosis pathogen. Have you ever heard of that? Murder. Very bad news for dogs. I doubt if even a warning label would be a deterrent though. You know, dogs, they don't pay attention to that kind of thing. I'm glad regular goobers for humans don't carry stuff like toxoplasmosis. I don't even know how to spell it. My goobers only contribute to artery clogging, elevated blood sugar, obesity, and concomitant heart disease. Phew, that was close. No toxo for me, if I live. But, as luck would have it, our dog got a bad batch and developed the toxo disease. She was on medication and was back home with our kids you know our son and daughter were caring for her and they just love her to death and give great care but nonetheless she's getting older and we were concerned so we thought it best if we cut a couple days from our vacay and return home we bid our friends a reluctant adieu and set off on our trek since our plans were fairly fluid we had no specific place in mind where we'd spend the first driving night the only thing we wanted to accomplish on day one was to land up somewhere about six hours from the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. I love that. Don't you love that span? That's just unbelievable. But in any event, sparing bad weather and traffic issues, on day two, we hoped to be able to make it to Lewis, Delaware, in time to catch the last ferry to the southern tip of Jersey. Sweet. After a few hours, we were fairly certain we'd be able to do our day one destination. So my spouse searched the web and found that a place called Will's Hollow Campground was on our route. It was touted as family friendly and affordable and was about five to six hours from the Bay Bridge. and That was absolutely perfect for us. Lisa connected with the honcho at the campground. He assured her that there were vacancies with complete hookups and pull throughs. Now this is all the good stuff that makes neophyte campers like us giddy. Of course, there were complications along the way, wild and crazy rainstorms and an accident with a massive backup where we sat still for really well over an hour, but that's pretty typical stuff that makes road trips memorable. we found that traveling in a small motorhome seems to take some of the sting out of traffic problems, all the comforts of home on wheels, The size of our van makes it super convenient in other ways as well. You know, we can drive through narrow streets and various places where we want to visit and park in a regular parking space or any parking lot with absolutely no problems. And the hookup campgrounds is a breeze. To complain after toweling all the convenience of motorhome travel makes me sound like a spoiled little weasel, doesn't it? But driving... For more than eight hours in a day can get to be a drag, no matter how comfortable your ride is. Shoulders start to stiffen, as does your neck, and not to mention your brain. On the road, there's no safe time to relax while you're moving. Some craziness overtakes that impels you to keep driving. gotta keep going. Gotta get there. I've forgotten who I am. It feels like I have slivers of glass in my eyeballs. But I gotta keep my foot on the frickin' gas. It is lunacy. And we've all done it, haven't we? You know you've done it. If you leave your guard down, if you get distracted, awful things can happen in a split second. Being hyper-vigilant for long periods exhausts you to your core. I do sound like a spoiled little weasel, don't I? Anyway, we heaved a sigh of relief when we finally came to the exit for Will's Hollow and were able to finally drive out of the oxymoronic tedium and madness of the interstate we were uncertain of the exact location of our new destination and thought well it's best to find a gas station we'll fill up stretch and rest the first station we came to resembled a set from a z-rated movie did we stop Oh, of course we did the place had definitely seen better days to describe it as beat up would actually do it justice like where were the zombies You know what I mean? Rusted remnants of cars and farm implements were strewn around the weed-choked property. The tarmac peppered with water-filled holes, looking like we might have just missed an earlier bombing raid. The route to the gas pumps was tricky. Rustic? Nah, just crappy. One of the pumps was blocked by what looked to be a 48 Chevy four-door sedan. It was in precarious condition, held together by duct tape and rust. There was a guy in equally poor repair leaning on the car. He was surveying the comings and goings of the station while leisurely eating from an orange cafeteria tray teetering precariously on the hood of the car. No one seemed to care that the way this guy parked was blocking access to half of the gas pumps. I guess you'd say... He fit in with the station's generally relaxed atmosphere. The only open and accessible pump was the one in front of the old Chevy rust bucket. So I pulled alongside and backed in as carefully as I could. The man-eating alfresco was watching us carefully as well as I maneuvered our van as close to the pump as I could. I feared that if I hit this thing, his ride would disintegrate in front of us when I finally managed to shoehorn in front of the pump and before I got out the gas up, Lisa did a quick survey of the surroundings and noticed that a little restaurant was attached to the garage. Its overall appearance synced with the general motif. There was a large window in the front of the restaurant that sported a crack from the top clear down to the pavement. The repair consisted of strips of silver duct tape covering the crack that gave the impression of a lightning bolt. It was hard to see inside because of a multitude of signs taped up helter Skeller, advertising food, sales, and other things I couldn't quite decipher. It was getting dark, so some weak light struggled through the interior sheen of grease and managed to cast shafts of light on the pavement outside. As Lisa sat looking toward the restaurant, she took a deep breath and on the exhale said, Well, what are you going to do? I looked over at her and asked, What are you talking about? Food, she snapped. All we've had to eat since breakfast are these damned peanut butter crackers and pretzels. We need something really good to eat, like real food. I was silent for a few seconds, then said, Geez, I don't know, Lisa. Look at this dump. Not to be deterred, she stretched, grabbed her purse, opened the door, and hopped down onto the tarmac. Looking up at me, smiling grimly, she said, I'm going in, Pilgrim. Then slammed the door and made her way over to the restaurant-slash-store-slash-garage complex. I shook my head and thought, that woman has lost her ever-loving mind. She's got to be nuts to even walk into that dive, and truly certifiable if she thinks I'm eating anything she brings out of it. Well, wouldn't I live to literally eat my words? Later, she told me what a pleasant surprise it was when she found a great-looking salad bar inside with a hot section that included fried chicken and my favorite, hush puppies, amongst other southern fare. Brother, let me tell you, while we were on our way to the campground, I was so hungry, and the chicken smelled so damn good, I could have eaten the bag it came in. So much for judging a book by its ratty cover. Lesson learned. I hopped out of the van and started pumping gas. As I was gassing up, Hey, Jersey boy! rang out. I snapped my head up and noticed the source of the greeting. It was the guy eating al fresco by the old Chevy. In keeping with the theme of the decrepit station, rotting Chevy and the rubble-strewn surround, here was another prop from Central Casting. He was a tall, beefy middle-aged guy with a ruddy complexion an unkempt salt-and-pepper beard and matching hair that burst forth from under a battered Charlotte Hornets ball cap, kinda like stuffing out of an old armchair. (laughs) He was dressed in bib overalls, stained with grease and rings of sweat. He fit the environment so well, I'd have been disappointed if he were clad in anything else. The issue now was that since Lisa was in the restaurant and I was pumping gas, if this guy was a wingnut. There was going to be no quick getaway for me. Out of luck. I looked over at him, smiled, and gave him a thumbs up. He yelled, "Go, Eagles!" Well, how about that? I thought. Okay, I got it. He spotted the Philadelphia Eagles decal in the side window. Not sure what to do. I. I smiled and did another dumb thumbs up thing, I was sensing a little deliverance thing setting up but he didn't have a banjo and I wasn't in a canoe, so there's always a little sunshine if you look for it. The guy continued standing by the car eating his chicken, looking over at me, chewing and smiling. I was still smiling pretty stupidly and nodding, what else was I supposed to do? I wish Lisa would get the hell back from the boar's nest so we could head on down the road. Meanwhile. Mr. Alfresco took a great chaw of his chicken, chucked the remainder of it onto the tray, wiped his hands on his overalls and sauntered over toward me. As he walked and chewed, he mumbled something. I, I really couldn't make it out, what he was saying. It sounded something like Boy Scouts of America. I, I didn't know. I had no idea what it was, he said. So, I just stood there smiling and nodding and That's what I do best. I'm actually good at smiling and nodding. He reached the side of our camper, chewed for another minute, then tried to gag down a huge mouthful of food. kind of reminded me of one of those pythons that you see on Animal Planet and the way they scarf down rats. Awful. He began moving his neck in a strange way like he was trying to itch his chest with his chin or something. You know, kind of weird. I didn't know if it was some kind of fan greeting or what. The way fans of the KC Chiefs used to do that spooky moaning thing and the tomahawk chop. Not knowing how to react, I just continued smiling and nodding. He started making noises. I thought it must be like that KC war chant or something. Suddenly, his smile was replaced with a puzzled look. His eyes bugged out of his head and his face turned an intense red then gray. With eyes blazing and tears flowing down his cheeks, he clutched at his throat and swayed and lurched to balance himself on the side of our van. I was stunned. What the hell? Then I got it. Ah, he's choking to death. I've never been accused of being a rocket scientist. Sometimes things take a little while to register. For a second there, I thought I was going to have to heimlich his greasy bib over old rear end, but success. He somehow managed to persuade his throat to accept the enormous oversized package he was trying to send to his ample belly. Not a word had passed between us since he mumbled that Boy Scouts thing. As the bolus apparently passed, the tearing stopped and his face resumed its original crimson hue. He stood sweating and panting, then emitted a thunderous belch and then resumed smiling. He took a couple of deep breaths, then said, whoa, whoa, wow. He chuckled. Wiping his dripping forehead on the back of his hand, he said, I gotta start chewing my food better. I thought, true, that brother, but more like you gotta make sure the animal's dead before you try to swallow it whole, otherwise it's gonna fight you. As if reacting to my unsaid, oh-so-snarky retort, he shook his head and laughed. Then he said, Igles, what do y'all think? Defense, what? At least that's what I think he said. His accent sounded like a mixture of Louisiana and Australia. I had to listen to him very closely. Anyway, I thought Guess we're back in the fan zone before I had a chance to recover from his near-death experience. I happen to agree with his take on our team's current lukewarm performance in the D as a point of clarification here and to place a timestamp on this conversation. These were the days... After the Eagles' successful Super Bowl run, and the team was still in the good graces of the Philadelphia fans, he shouted, Why are they letting him get at the quarterback? I I, I thought, what? Who Who were they, and what the hell was this quarterback he was talking about? He went on, Them Seahawk bastards. Looked like they were trying to kill a quarterback. No good bastards. Well, finally, I got it and said, Right. No killin' the Cotabic. I was happy to be talking football with this fan. He was acting like a regular Philly boy in bib overalls. Being a veteran of some of the nosebleed skirmishes at the vet, however, I knew how a fan's mood could switch from bonum to blind, teeth-bearing rage in a heartbeat. Fans could start out as fast friends and allies, but a disagreement about the team's performance or a debate about statistics could evoke intense unpleasantness. Back in 68, for example, in the midst of a miserable season for Philly football, the house turned on Santa. An important background piece here, not that attacking Santa's not important, but I guess in way of explaining the behavior. The Birds lost the first 11 of 14 games that year. At a game shortly before Christmas, as a guy in a Santa suit did a lap around the field, thousands of frustrated fans pelted old St. Nick himself with snowballs, chasing him, running for his life, out of the stadium. Oh my gosh, lots of coal in the stockings that year. But that visceral fan madness is what I'm talking about. I was therefore very careful in my responses to his take on the D, sticking mostly with the tried-and-true nodding, smiling, and thoughtfully wrinkling of the brow. Thankfully, Lisa emerged from the restaurant with a bag of who knew what. As she neared the camper, she must have heard the hyped-up fan and me because she hesitated for a second before continuing on. She clenched her jaw and then lowered her head and approached us. Lisa's one of those... Stand-by-your-man kind of girl. She might feel like giving me a good kick in the ass sometimes, but don't let anybody else try it. My new friend saw her walking to the van, turned off his fan speak for a second, smiled at her and said, Hiya, honey. Y'all get some uh, chicken? Place ain't much to look at, but damn goodies. I try to hear this guy. A case of the pot calling the kettle black. Yes, sir, I did, Lisa said holding up the bag for the guy to see and with a cautious smile said, we're so hungry and it smells just wonderful. The man said, tastes even better, sweetie. Just then, we heard a door slam and a middle-aged woman wearing faded, tight-fitting, floral-patterned jeans and a UVA sweatshirt came out of the store section of the building. She was deeply tanned and armed with a world-class scowl. Our Eagles fan's shoulders slumped when he saw who had come out of the store. She looked over at us with hands on hips and yelled, Harold, get your butt up here and talk to Collins. He's leaving in a couple of minutes. Then as an afterthought, and quit bothering them people. Her cadence was so rapid that she sounded like an auctioneer. Looks like the fan's name is Harold. And Harold turned to us and gesturing with his chin said, That's Mickey. Just then Mickey let out a shriek that liked to curl my hair. She screamed. And like somebody stuck him with a hot poker, he spun towards the woman, gritted his teeth, and with red face gone purple, bellowed, I ain't bothering nobody, Mickey. Shut it, will ya? And under his breath growled, damn it, and kicked at the broken pieces of asphalt on the ground beneath him. We silently mouthed, what the frick? The woman shook her head and turned to walk back into the station. She stopped short of the door and spun to look at Harold. He saw her turn and seemed to brace himself. She pointed at him and yelled, And move that goddamn car, boy! At which she turned and strode into the store, letting the door slam behind her. Harold, robbed of his dignity, turned to us. He shook his head, took a deep breath, let it out in an audible whoosh. (sighs) Ah, just like that. Forcing a sickly smile through gritted teeth, he muttered, 35 years, and slowly ambled off towards the station. I called after him and said, Pleasure talking with you, sir. Good meeting a real fan so far from home. Harold turned and said, I do appreciate y'all, joysy boy. As he trudged away, he turned to us, a fan vanquished. Beaten. He managed to smile and said again, I appreciate y'all, Joyce. You too, sweetie. Go Eagles! We all chuckled and gave a thumbs up, and Harold climbed the steps and disappeared into the store. I went back to work, finished with the gas, and managed to scrape most of the bug splatter off the windshield. Lisa checked to see if all the external compartment doors were secure. Then we hopped up into the van and headed out of Blitzville. As we pulled away, we could see Harold and Mickey in the station, engaged in what you might call an animated conversation. Holy crap, what the heck was that all about, Lisa asked. I said, well, we're Eagles fans is all. He wanted to hook up and have a tailgate. Lisa chuckled and said, I'd be able to laugh if I could get Texas Chainsaw Massacre out of my head. We both rolled our eyes, laughed, and continued our journey to Will's Hollow. Jeff and Lisa have almost completed the first leg of their journey back home. Mama's Good Eats provided an opportunity to fuel up and rest their bodies and minds from their prolonged stint behind the wheel. During the stop, they met Harold, a loyal fan of their football team. He had the brio of a guy from South Philly, an Eagles fan through and through. After discussing Mama's and Cutterbecks, the pair headed back out on the road and onto this night's destination. Wills Hollow Campground we'll see what happens next time when chapter 2 of Camping in the Deep Woods with Norman Bates The Travels of Lisa and Jeff continues if you've enjoyed listening let us know check out our webpage and that is talesfromsecondstreet.buzzsprout.com this is Doug Scott thanks for listening and see you next time